Well, good evening. It's good of you to come out and be with me, <laughs> and me with you. Um, we're in Genesis 32, if you want to pick up your Bible. Um, and we've been going through Genesis, and most of you sitting here know, I think, that we've watched um, God put people and the world into motion. We've then watched people think they can do life without him and have gone off in their own direction. And from that moment, God has begun a rescue plan to see us brought back into relationship with himself. And at the moment, he's working towards doing it through a group of people, through a nation of people. And we've seen it begin with Abraham, and then on to his son Isaac. And now we're going to be following, we have been following, Jacob, Isaac's son. Yes, Jacob, one of Isaac's sons, who God also is carrying on this rescue plan through. Um, So Genesis 32, we have seen Jacob, um, he's quite kind of a hungry, persistent, determined sort of guy. Uh, He decided that he was going to steal the birthright off his brother Esau and did that in quite a clever way um, and saw the birthright come to himself. He then fled. While he was fleeing, he came across uh, family and fell in love with one of the daughters there. But he then became the deceived and married the sister of the woman he would like to have married. But some years passed, and then he got both. And uh, and then he had children, and he's been living with that family unit. But that's beginning to break down a little bit now as well. And so we're at a point where uh, Jacob is deciding, he's thinking it's the right thing to begin to actually 25 years on from stealing the birthright from his brother Esau to think about going back and facing his brother. It's a big deal. You'd think EastEnders has got stuff going on. You just need to open up the Bible. Okay, so we're in um, Genesis 32. Um, But before we read it, before we read it, um, thinking of Jacob as a man with guts and determination, I wonder if, and I know it's a hot evening, and I know... You know, it's, it's quarter seven, it's seven o'clock. Um, and this is probably the last thing you feel like doing. But uh, up on the screen are going to be a set of instructions that actually, to see through, you need a lot of guts and perseverance and determination. Now, I'm not going to tell you what the instructions are describing. I want you to look at the instructions and see if you can work out what is being described. Okay? So are you all right, Claire, to go with the first first one, thank you. So, the first one says, okay, what's being described? Divide the strong people on your team into the front and back sections. Put some of the strong people, put some of the strong people in the front and back and mix the weaker people in between. It's the first instruction of, of this thing. Any thoughts yet? Okay, next. Next slide would be good. Everyone should move. Oh, is there one before that, Claire? Or is it just me? Everyone, thank you, should lean the upper part of the body back and pull, but using both of the legs as anchors. Margaret's got it. (gasps) Margaret, what did you think after the first slide? (gasps) Tug of war, yes! That's amazing, Margaret. 
Well, so we will now go through the instructions for a decent tug of war. So first thing you should do is divide the strong people on your team, oh my goodness, Margaret, onto the, into the front and back sections. Put some of the strong people in the front and the back and put the weaker people in between. Then everyone should lean the upper part of their body back and pull, but using both of the legs as anchors. Everyone should move in small baby steps. Pull. Use all your leg muscles. Arms should be locked out. Don't waste energy trying to pull with your arms. Everyone should pull at the same time because this will generate the maximum amount of force that your team is capable of. And then apparently, much like a dragon boat team, a good fluid and coordinated motion can propel the opposing team forward. Do you see? The opposing team forwards. <laughs> you can go now. The winning team goes backwards. <laughs> Margaret, you are on the ball. Andy is not. Okay, what about this one? Okay, now this, these set of instructions, you can either, and I appreciate it's hot, and I appreciate Sunday evening, you can either listen to these with your arms folded and go, hmm, I'll ponder that, or... If you like the person you're sitting next to, you can actually practice these and see what it is that I am describing. Something that takes guts, determination, perseverance, and strength. Okay, there's, there's a couple of techniques to what it is I'm describing here. The first technique is the top roll. Okay, <laughs> the top roll. Right here, the key to top rolling is to work your hand up your opponent's palm. Your goal is to have your hand wrapped around the top part of, it's quite cryptic, the top part of his hand with him holding the bottom part of yours. If you quite like the person next to you, you're welcome to have a go at what's just being described. If you don't, or you're like, no, I did not come here for this, that is also fine. The key to top rolling is to work your hand up your opponent's palm. Your goal is to have your hand wrapped around the top part of his hand with him holding the bottom part of yours. Does anyone get it? I think some of you are doing it. Do you think by doing that, do you know what I'm going on to describe? Arm wrestling. How to win an arm wrestle. This is the top rolling technique. Okay? The next slide goes on to describe the hook. So you don't say you don't come to church and learn anything. The hook. The hook is simple and can be used by itself or with the top roll. The goal of the hook is to force your opponent's hand back, thus creating your power and leverage. As soon as you hear go, force your opponent's hand back and expose his wrist by twisting your wrist towards you. Anyone getting that? <laughs> yes, Hannah Burden. It's causing, I can't do it to myself. The, that, that kind of, yes. Yes. Often, um, matches dissolve into stalemate, and this is how to avoid the situation. When you're ready to finish your opponent, rotate your body so that your shoulder is in line with the direction you want your arm to go. <laughs> so it's just, yes, <laughs> yes, this will allow you to call on your much stronger shoulder muscles and utilize your body weight, unless your opponent has superhuman strength. That is how to win an arm wrestle. Okay. So it's good to know. It's good stuff to know. When I researched how to win an arm wrestle, do you know what site came up first that I was taken to for arm wrestling techniques? If you notice, all those instructions win the masculine. <laughs> I was taken to the website called The Art of Manliness. 
the art of manliness. So clearly I should not have been reading this sort of information on how to win an arm wrestle. It's clearly just for the, just for the men in the room, it would appear. Not. Not. Okay. So there are a couple of wrestles. Tug of war, that wrestle with the forces back and forth. Arm wrestling, using your power and your might and a little bit of skill to overpower the other. We're now going to look at another type of wrestle, which is unlike either of those two wrestles that I've just described. We're going to read together 32. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanaim. Jacob sent his messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the county of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my master Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys and sheep and goats, men servants and maidservants, and now I'm sending this message to my Lord that I may find favour in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. There he is, plotting and scheming and planning again. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I have had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, when my brother meets you and asks, to whom do you belong and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you, then you are to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second, third, and all the others who followed the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him, and be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. And later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of Jabok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. 
When the man saw he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. But Jacob said, please tell me your name. He replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. So it's quite a passage, really, with this presentation of flocks and animals and flocks, not flocks, animals and herds, uh, ready to try and get heads up on Esau, because he's thinking, I'm really in for it, so what can I do to make it all all right? You know, you need to get something wrong at home when you're growing up, and you're kind of like, I've got to tell mum I've done this thing, so what I'll do first is wash up and clean up, and then I'll let her know that I broke the vase that I was told not to touch. It's that kind of mindset. I know this is going to be bad, so how can I kind of ease the news that that we're going to meet and we're going to face each other and all our history and all that went on? So they've all gone ahead of him, and Jacob has been left. And we read what we're focusing in on is this wrestle with God. I mean, who wrestling with God, God coming in human form? Some people have wondered whether this is God, is this God? Or is this just an emotional wrestle with himself? Jacob just thrashing out some, some past history that he's got to face. Is it him talking with himself through the night, you know, thinking, how am I going to react? Kind of going back and forth, back and forth. Or is this actually a physical fight with a being, with God? And the conclusions that people much more intelligent than myself have come to, as we look at the big picture of the Bible, as we see the character of God, as we see when he intervenes in this way in history, is that yes, this is in all probability God coming down and meeting Jacob that night. So I want to zone in on 22, but look at verse 1 before we do. It's a really lovely thing. In verse 1... Jacob went on his way to meet Esau. He's decided to go ahead with this. And he's fearful. And what do we see? The angels of God met him. So Jacob's wound up. The thing he's got to face, the path he's got to face, was down to his own mistakes and his own fallenness. But what does God do at the beginning of this journey back to meet his brother? He sends angels to say, I'm with you and I'm on the move. That supernatural encounter, that as the day pans on, my goodness, a huge supernatural encounter is about to come during that night of wrestling with God. But do you know what I love and what has really struck me looking at this this week? Verse 22 to 32. This wrestling with God. When does it happen? It happens at night. But more than that... More than that. Because when you go in to wrestle with somebody, what about, what about Murray going in, not physically to wrestle with Djokovic today, but he went into battle. He went in to grapple for the Wimbledon title, championship. 
And what did he go out with? He went out with, not, not actually on the court, but all these months leading up to it, what has he had around him? He's had a trainer. He's had a nutritionist. He's had a physiotherapist. He's had his special rackets, his special shoes, his special making sure he's all patched up and strong in, in the right ways physically. He's gone in with a whole team and a whole heap of stuff. You know, Ivan Lendl coaching him mentally, coaching him physically to be at his prime to be able to hold that cup up this afternoon, which he picked up and held. So Jacob is about to wrestle God. Okay, it's the middle of the night. Now, what does Jacob have when he gets this moment of meeting God face to face, one to one? Djokovic, Murray, head to head. Jacob and God, head to head. What does he have around him? Actually, God chooses to come to Jacob at a time when Jacob was left alone. His wives have gone, his maidservants have gone, his 11 sons have gone. His possessions are over, ready to meet Esau. He's got nothing. It's the middle of the night. He has been stripped away of everything he's worked for. Family, possessions, wealth, business, it's gone. It's all over the other side. Right now, he has nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. It's him and God, stripped right back. And I think it's really significant that God comes at the time when Jacob is just Jacob. He doesn't have stuff around him. And we have that human worldly stuff, don't we, that we hold dear. And rightly so, our family, our friends, our education maybe, our employment. We hold on to those things because those things mark us out as successful and secure. And so we have those things around us. But actually... When I think about the times I've followed, you know, following God for a number of years, when I think about the times where I have felt face-to-face with God, it's been when a lot of those things have been shaken, when actually my comfort and security and the things that I hold familiar and dear actually have been stripped back, have been pulled away from me, and I'm left feeling quite exposed and vulnerable when somebody close dies or when somebody you love very much lets you down and you never thought they would, and it was always going to be okay, and it was always going to be this way, and it isn't suddenly. Sand shifts underneath. But it's in those moments, and I'd love to go through them all, but I'm not here to tell you my life story, but I'd love to hear your life story. Are they your moments when actually, that's when you see God face to face. That's when this following the God of the Bible and the going to church and the singing and the praying and the believing and the walking hits the road and you see, actually, there's an intimacy with God that's to be had that sometimes can be hindered by the stuff around us that the world holds dear. When they're taken away, there's a time for God to break in. And it's very intimate wrestling with somebody. You know, Murray and Djokovic today, apart from a sweaty hug at the beginning and a sweaty hug at the end of the match, there isn't a lot of contact there. It's very clean and very clinical, isn't it? It's got its boundaries, its white lines, its chalk, non-contact, non-contact. In terms of closeness between those two players, there's very little. But here, when everything's stripped back and God comes to meet Jacob face to face, There's an intimacy of seeing. He says, I've seen God face to face. Smelling God face to face. Touching God. That real closeness. 
because it's a contact sport. God is a contact God. He is not clinical and removed and sits uh, by a set of instructions and rules and regulations and operates like this when we do that. There isn't that. God is a contact God who comes in and close and intimate. And Jacob is forced to face God with that that night. And what I love is in that vulnerability, with having everything stripped away, and it's just him and God, this time Jacob doesn't run. He doesn't flee. When you've had any of your things that are secure and comfortable stripped away, you do have a choice. Do you want to run? Do you want to flee? Or do you want to use it as a moment of intimacy to have with God? Because the invitation is there. I wonder if you create times to have intimacy with God. The opportunity for face-to-face moments. Sometimes circumstances might force them. As I've said, people letting you down, things changing, unemployment taking a hold, your job no longer secure, somebody you loved and trusted letting you down. When those things move, do you turn and hold on to God in those moments? Do you create and invite him in? Or when everything's going all right and actually everything's just okay, thank you, but then you wonder how your relationship with God's doing. Well, look at Jacob's intimate moment with God. He's alone. It's quiet. It's at night. I'm not saying we all have to get up to two in the morning and, uh, uh, to seek God's face, although a lot, of, a lot of people do live to that pattern of, of life, that rhythm of life, that they will get up at two in the morning to seek God. Maybe it's something to consider for some of us. But are you carving out quiet places, quiet times, My kitchen on a Friday morning was one of my highlights. That would be a time for me and God. My kitchen on a Friday morning. Maybe a special place that it's good to go and just be be with him. Just persist. Jacob spent all night wrestling. Just persist. Find a quiet place and choose to say, I'm going to persist in this quietness, God, to seek you, to hear you, to touch you, smell you, to feel you. That intimate wrestling that we see here in these verses. So that's the wrestle. It's quite unlike any other wrestle. It tops Djokovic and Murray's wrestle this afternoon. But what do we notice about the outcome of this? It goes on all night. It's full of grit and energy and determination. Jacob's quite a boy. He wrestles all night. And... um, At the end of the night, what do we see? At the end of the tennis match today, what did we see? We saw a consolidatory... That's not the word. When someone loses, is that the word? Consolidatory hug? A hug to say, oh, well done, you won, or what, you know, I'm I'm sorry, you lost. And a little handshake, and a handshake here, and a handshake there. And now, I guess, centre corn senti. Everyone's gone on their way. Murray's gone to celebrate. Djokovic has gone to cry, maybe. Uh, Everybody else has, has, has headed home. But what do we see at the end of this battle, at the end of this grapple? Well, does anyone give up and walk off? Does Jacob call it quits and say, do you know what, I'm out of here? No. Does God say, do you know what, you are really hard work. I give up on you, I'm out of here. No. Has there been polite shaking of hands saying it's been lovely to spend the night with you? I'm going to go my separate way now. No. What do we see of the outcome of this fight? There is no winner and there is no loser. Because, verse 26... Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. 
I will not let you go. What must that mean? It must mean, if Jacob's not letting God go, he must be clinging on to God. He is a man that's turned from a man of defence, very together, very sorted, very self-sufficient, very deceitful, very planning, very cunning, very sorted. Kind of a defensive position. And I think he goes into wrestle defensively. He doesn't surrender. He doesn't say, whoa, you're God. I'm on my knees. It takes all night. So Jacob, I imagine with his arms, I don't know how you wrestle with your arms folded, but a defensive position from Jacob all through the night until at the end, what? God's saying, let me go. Something has gone on during this wrestle during the night, spiritually, emotionally, in Jacob's heart, in Jacob's character, actually physically, because for Jacob to be clinging on to God, he's got to have opened himself up. He's got to have physically let, opened his arms to be able to hold on. I can't cling on like this in a defensive position. I can't cling on to this lectern with my arms folded in a defensive. I've just, it's not going to work. I have to release my closed stance to be able to reach out and hold on to this. Jacob had to release a closed stance to hold on to God and choose during the night to not let that be a forced thing but a clinging on and holding on to God thing. He's released his defensive position. The self-sufficient scheming planner has have to soften and open up to God. And you know, that is a great moment in the human spirit. When you, when I, when people we know go from self-sufficient, I'm sorted, I'm defensive, I've got it all going my way, I'm just okay to an open position of surrender where they say, do you know what? I'm clinging on to you now, God. And there's a moment when that happens the first time for each one of us, that realisation where we have wrestled with God and come to a point where we say, do you know what, God? No longer my way but yours. And we hold on. And there's a first time, but then as followers of Jesus, I have to do that over and over and over again. There are times when I want to fold my arms again and say, actually, do you know what? No, my way. I know what I'm doing. I've got the plans. I've got the dreams. I've got it sorted. You come with me. No. I have to choose to say, no, actually, not the defensive, I'm sorted position, but clinging on to you. What are you doing? Where are we going, God? I'm holding on for dear life to you, as we see from Jacob. So I wonder if there's an area in your life that you need to open up and let God in on. Because you might have access to a number of areas, but there's one area in particular that you're defensive and closed on. And your position and your stance is no. You're not coming in. You're not touching that. I don't know. Is it worth thinking about? Is it worth having some time with God and saying, is there an area actually, Lord, that I've closed off to you? that I've said I'm self-sufficient and sorted in and you're not coming in on, that, that you want to come in on. It's, it's worth asking. It's worth asking him because it's a beautiful moment and it's the safest thing to do. Okay, finally, we've seen the wrestle, quite unlike any other wrestle. We've seen the outcome, massive shift in the night, Jacob's heart uh, against God to being for God so much so that he's clinging on and holding on to him for dear life. And then verses 28 to 30. 
What do we notice about this blessing that he says, he asks for? Bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. So there's been this blessing upon Jacob from God to him. And and what's amazing about this blessing is that God didn't need to do any of what we've just read. Right back since the beginning of Genesis, God has not needed at any of those moments to do what he chooses to do. He chooses to come and use broken, fallen men like Abraham, like Isaac, like Jacob, like you and like me, to continue this rescue plan and see his kingdom extend throughout the world, really, until Jesus comes again. And he's invited Jacob in to do it with him. And he's seen that Jacob needs working on. And he's not given up. He's gone, do you know what, I'm going to wait till that moment. I'm giving Jacob a heads up. I'm sending angels at the beginning of the day, or the beginning of that trip, giving a heads up that I'm on the move and there's stuff going on here. I'm going to wait till everything's stripped back, till his wives have gone, his maidservants have gone, his cattle's gone, all his status and security is over there. Jacob's on his own here. I'm going in to meet him. Because I love him and I want to change him. And I love the world and I want to rescue the world. And I'm using that man in this moment to see that mission accomplished. That's what he's doing. And that is what he is still doing. That is what God is still doing now. Jacob got a name change. A name change from Jacob to Israel, the one who struggles with God and overcomes. It is okay to struggle with God. It is okay to wrestle with him. It is okay to, to, to hear things and to see things and to take them to God and say, I do not understand this. I am not okay with this. This really hurts. This is really hard. But I want to wrestle it out with you. Not take it in myself, my way, but actually bring it to you and wrestle it with you. And those wrestles may take years. It might be one night. It might be one year. It might be ten years. But it's okay to wrestle. Jacob wrestled with God, but what did he do? He overcame. And he overcame because God met him in that place and says, I know it's hard, and I'm coming down to meet you, and we'll work on you together. It's okay to wrestle. Because we're under construction. Jacob was under construction. He was a man who was undergoing a change. And we've seen the change begin to evolve in him. But that night, something very intense and very special happened. Very supernatural. You and I are under construction. We are works in progress. If we are willing to open up from defensive to clinging and to surrender who we are and what we're about to God, it's the safest place to be. Because we go on to see that this God that wrestled with Jacob that night is the God that ultimately sent Jesus to come and rescue us once and for all. There's um, there's a lovely uh, quote here from Tozer who um, writes a little bit about this some years ago, a lot of years ago. 
Um, but there's a sense of excitement about the anticipation. If we're under construction, it means we haven't arrived. And people that know me think that Emily hasn't arrived. That's good to know. She's still under construction. If she's open and willing, God's still on the move in me to change and to soften and to grow me. And so be encouraged for yourself and the people around you. If they're open to God, they're a work under construction. And that is, that, that is good to know. Um, just want to finish here with... Um, Tozer. So imagine Jacob, the the schemer, the planner, the self-sufficient, successful businessman on his own on the bank that night with God. And Tozer says this, God does not desire to destroy our wills, but to sanctify them. In that terrible, wonderful moment of surrender, it may be that we feel our will has been forever broken, but such is not the case. In his conquest of the soul, God does not destroy any of its normal powers. He purges the will and brings it into union with his own, but he never breaks it. So if there's an area of your life you think God's putting his finger on, and you're like, ah, yeah, but I don't want to, but I don't want to, hear this. God does, if he's putting his finger on it, it's because he loves you, it's because he wants to be intimate with you, and he wants to bring that area into union with who he is. But he won't break you. He will never break you. So Toza goes on to say, let us then set our sails in the will of God. If we do this, we will certainly find ourselves moving in the right direction, no matter which way the wind blows. If we set our sails in the will of God, we will find ourselves moving in the right direction, no matter which way the wind blows. And the wind does blow, doesn't it? And we can feel tossed and torn and and blown around. But actually, this God, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, is the God of you and of me. And this intimate encounter that sees Jacob moulded and changed more into a man of God is the same God that wants to mould and grow you more into the man and woman of God that he wants you to be. And it's a safe place. I can't remember who said it, but no one's ever taller than when, or stronger, or taller, stronger and taller, than when they're on their knees. Looks like a weak place to be. But actually, if you're on your knees with God, you're never stronger than in those moments. Shall we pray? Father, I thank you for the richness of history. You know, we've been talking about no man winning Wimbledon for 77 years. You know, we, 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 we think about history, Jesus, and yet sometimes when we walk with you, it, we forget that actually you have been and always will be at work and active, looking to save people, encountering Abraham, encountering Isaac, in this moment coming to Jacob, out of a love and a grace that is undeserved and unmerited. But you came because you are for us and not against us. You came to him because you want to see this world redeemed and brought back to its saviour and creator God. And Father, I thank you that you are intimate with us too. That you want to save us. You want to work on our character. You want to soften our wills to align them more with your own. And it is so hard and so easy to get caught up with the stuff, with stuff that is familiar and secure and comfortable at the expense of that raw encounter of meeting you face to face. 
I pray, Jesus, that you would strip things away within us that prevent that intimacy with you. I pray you would draw those things to our mind, you would draw those things to our heart, and that we would have the courage and the desire to surrender them to you. Father, I thank you that you will never break our will. You only long for the best for us. And to be in union with you is the best for us. So, Father, I ask that you would soften our hearts, that we would understand we are under construction. We are works in progress. And that there would be a willingness to go from the defensive to the open, and then from the open to the clinging of you and all that you are. That intimate encounter, so we can say we have touched God, we have seen God, I have smelt God, I feel God, I know God, I love God, my God. So Holy Spirit, please, we offer ourselves to you individually and as a body of people today. Say, have your way in us, please, for your glory and for your kingdom. Amen.